join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard lessons from the best and brightest the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are on your personal path. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Centurion Arms. Hard use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. Now here's your host, John Johnson. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things, like class announcements, at facebook.com slash ballisticradio. Hey, Joe. Of course, the heat kicks on here when we're about to be finished. Well, you know, I... I think you got up and turned it on like 20 or 30 minutes ago. Oh, then, more like an hour and a half ago. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. I'm I'm bundled up. Probably what's going to happen is I'm going to get uncomfortably warm any second now. So, but, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right meow. Meow. Did you just say meow? No. Anyway. Hey, I'm super excited because John Hearn is here again. Hey, John. Welcome back. Hey, hey, thank you for having me. Well, you know, you were here, and I like talking with you because we both like to talk. So the episodes I have you on are really easy. I don't have to think very hard about them because we we just get to have the conversation we would have in private, and people get to listen to it. So, um, so yeah, but for those that maybe missed last week's episode or haven't, running you before or anything like that. Who are you and what do you do? Okay. So I kind of have this, I guess, dual track career going on uh, day job. I've been a law enforcement officer since 1992, um, supervising LE operation, do training, that sort of thing. I've also been involved in the private sector training world since about 2001, working uh, with Tom Givens of range master. Uh, something that tends to get me the attention, I guess, more than anything else is that I'm also a huge research guy I love to go to the library and just dig, so I have a lot of generally worthless knowledge crammed away in my head, but uh, when we do episodes like this, suddenly that knowledge doesn't seem quite as worthless. I bet you're hell on wheels with Jeopardy, I, I gotta say. It's, it's probably maybe trivia. <laughs> as long as we don't do sports questions. Oh. Okay? I, I kick butt at trivia, uh, Trivial Pursuit until we get to the sports questions, and there's just like this huge void in my world. Hey, sports ball, you know, I know that we got to score more baskets than the other team when we're driving down the football field and, you know, hit a home run or something. Anyway, so what what we kind of decided to talk about today, because we very, and by briefly, I mean like 20 seconds at the end of the last episode, you mentioned that you're going to be shooting, or shooting, teaching a cognitive pistol and tactical anatomy class. So... I'd kind of like to zoom out and discuss why should we be focusing on the cognitive process with a gun in our hands? That sounds great. You want to kick this off or am I kicking? I mean, we, we could, we could kick. Um, we, we could both kick. So I, you know, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not here to talk. I'm here to listen. Well, I, you know, part of the reason I'm offering this class is um, to I don't know, basically try to correct some deficiencies I've seen in a lot of common training. 
Uh, a lot of the, the firearms training that tends to get offered these days is the stuff that can be um, offered to the public at the maximum potential profit for the instructor. Uh, you know, you'll, I think we've, if you've done any training at all, you've been in the class where you've got this really cool guy with the awesome Vita, and he's got it managing a line of 24 people, which for you know, just a span of control is pretty impossible. And because of the span of control they're trying to maintain, we're going to you know, shoot in this very, very narrow lane, we're not going to move. We're not going to do um, any thinking with the gun in our hands, that kind of a stuff. So part of the reason I wanted to offer this was to correct some deficiencies I've seen in a lot of training programs. Uh, an example of that would be just simply moving around people that don't need to be shot with a weapon. Um, we, we discuss it here and there, but we don't actually practice it. And after trying to run some classes with my folks or some of the open enrollment stuff I've done in the past, um, something that when you put it on paper, yeah, let's move around friends with guns, um, something that seems almost intuitive, how could this be a problem? When you actually try to make people do it, it becomes a, uh, a, a cluster episode very, very quickly. So, um, you know, something as simple as, you know, thinking about the lane I'm moving into with my firearm is not something that we practice, but we probably should be. Um, so that, that's one of the things I'm looking towards is, you know, I'm building this as a more advanced class. And we're trying to take, the, uh, take care to address some of the topics that we don't generally do in most other classes because of, you know, expediency, teaching methods, profitability, that sort of concern. Well, and it strikes me, too, and, and I know we're of similar mind on this because, you know, in full disclosure, and you already, you already knew this because we've talked about it, but, like, so one of my compatriots and I are going to be teaching a class that, is and I I know for a fact we'll approach it from different directions or similar directions, but you know they'll it'll be its own thing. Uh, but we're getting ready to, to roll out a cognitive shooting skills class towards the I want to say ours is scheduled in September. Um, Chris Seipert and I, and and Chris has been on the show, so if you want to hear a really smart dude talk about stuff, um, go check one of those episodes out. But it, it's something that I agree with you completely is not a thing that is gotten into nearly as much as I think it should be because, frankly, most people, in my experience, focus on mechanics of shooting. And, and those are important, and we can talk about why they're important inside of this context in just a little bit. Uh, they're incredibly important, but there's not nearly as much time spent on decision-making or... And when you say decision-making, most people assume, like, shoot, no shoot, stuff like that. And that is part of it. But decision-making, as far as, like, positioning, uh, approaches to things, it, it's a much larger problem than I think people give it credit for. And why do you think it's not discussed more or taught more, or, or am I just not aware of certain things? I know, I know it's taught in classes but it's taught as like part of a larger whole it's not the class itself so i guess what what are your thoughts on all all that uh you know i, I think it's not a lot of people um who have never been in bad situations don't realize how quickly they go bad right and if you have all the time the decision all the time in the world to make decisions you can make sound decisions the problem is going to be is we're talking about typically especially for the armed citizen encounters that last less than five seconds in which you're going to have to make decisions that determine whether somebody lives or die and whether you spend the rest of your life, you know, sharing a ten, you know, a, a very small space with someone who has a bunch of prior felonies. So 
once we compress the time frame the decisions have to be made in, they get a lot harder to make. And I think a lot of people, because they're only discussing this in a classroom context, um, they're not putting it in the context where the decision will actually be made. They underappreciate the difficulty of what they're trying to do. Well, and that's an interesting thing as well in that when we talk about the compressed time frames, right? So let's, let's just pick an arbitrary number for the ease and sake of discussion. If we talk about like, oh, I don't know, a four-second window, right? So four seconds, and, and I'll just count it out, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000. That doesn't seem like a lot of time, but a lot of things can go on inside of that four-second window. But the interesting thing to me and my experience is depending on your ability to process information and specifically depending on how much work you have put into, as William April would have called it, pre-need decision-making, that's all the time in the world. So how? What, what are your thoughts on that as far as how do we get students to, for lack of a better word, look at four seconds as all the time in the world versus, oh, my God, what do I do? Well, that's where, uh, you know, we, we talk, we, we kind of, you know, I won't say we poo-pooed me- uh, shooting metrics, but we kind of you said, hey, that's not the only thing out there. That's where shooting metrics become important. If I uh, shoot enough, if I have a high enough level of technical skill, I can reduce the, the cognitive load, how much I have to think to get the gun into action and make a shot, to nothing, right? So that's where the high number of repetitions, um, the high draw stroke, you know, I don't necessarily care how quick your draw stroke is once we're under, you know, what, 1.72 seconds. What I care about is the number of repetitions you had to do to get there. So that high number of repetitions will transfer that to a different part of your brain that's actually in a different memory system, but it doesn't require conscious thought to access. So once I've taken care of the shooting mechanics, I've offloaded it to another part of my brain, I can sit there and worry about everything else I need to worry about, whether it's do I have a clean background for the shoot, have I reached the point where deadly force is really authorized, have I exhausted all my possibilities for deselection here, can I escape, evade, so it's really important to, you know, offload as much of that shooting stuff to the unconscious mind so that you can worry about the really important things. And the problem is we spend way too much time worrying about the shooting metrics and not enough time worrying about the really important things. Well, it strikes me, too, that when we get into, again, sort of the idea of, so what you're talking about is unconscious competence, overlearning, whatever word you want to use for it, right? And it strikes me, too, that this is where exposing yourself to as many different, I guess, situations to attempt to rem- attempt to remove novel stimuli becomes incredibly important as well. So that you've kind of got a at that point, you're just trying to remove ambiguity from the situation, understand what situation you're in so that you can implement, you know, whatever the appropriate action is. Well, yeah, you want to pressure tech. If you want to do something, you know, basically if you want a capability, you need to develop it. You have to have it before you actually need it. And all the stuff, the instances you talked about are an example of building that capability. You, know, you can think of it as pressure testing that capability, getting it ready so that it can withstand stress. Um, you know, that, that's one of the paradoxes is that the human being can do incredible acts of performance from, you know, even fine motor skills under high levels of stress if they've trained enough for it. 
but we can certainly see enough police shooting videos in which people can really, really spiral down a negative path very, very quickly. So again, we're both talking about human beings, but the range of possible outcomes are huge. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what explains that range and outcome is the prior preparation that uh, went into the event. So what we want to do is prepare ourselves as much as possible so we can perform those, you know, we can perform like the high end of that spectrum and not be on the low end. Right. Uh, We've got to go to break. So when we get back, we'll be talking more with John Hearn. Right now, you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977, a legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDC X9 series of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters, 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity, as well as reliability, at WilsonCombat.com. So we're talking with John Hearn and kind of getting into an area that is near and dear to me and something that I enjoy quite a bit, nerd, nerd, nerd about quite a bit. And that's sort of the idea of, I guess, unconscious competence and how that affects our performance inside of a, and I'll use the buzzword, a critical incident, right? So, and you were discussing, I guess, the need to pressure test things under stress. And I, I'd be curious for you to talk about that a little bit more. So, you know, one of the myths out there is that, you know, there, there are different kinds of stress. And that's just not the case. Your, your, your body really realizes that things are bad. So the difference in stress between somebody trying to kill you and worrying about a test, it's the same chemical substance. It's just how much of it there is and how fast it's coming at you. So it's kind of like drinking from a water fountain versus drinking out of a fire hose. They're both, you know, you're both ingesting uh, water out of both of them, but the experiences are fundamentally different. So if you can get yourself exposed increasingly, the stress has less and less effect. So you can almost, you know, um, change that fire hose into drinking from the water fountain. Uh, you know, a lot of this just has to, um, if we look at the, uh, the research data on exceptional pilots, a lot of what we're trying to teach people is what's important. There's always more information out there than you can absorb, and the people that tend to do really, really well in these events are the kind of people who can recognize what's actually important and focus on it. So, again, that, that pressure testing is part of that process to um, allow us to free other resources to focus on the problem. Well, and you've been through the For Science uh, Institute material, right? I'm not misremembering. I have. Yeah. So, yep. And I, I know one of the things that they show, in, it's incredibly interesting, and it was a study that they did, but they show a video of it in the uh, Force Analyst class, and that's essentially the visual scan patterns of an inexperienced police officer versus an experienced police officer and where they're looking and the information that they're looking for and their ability to predict where that information is going to come from. Uh, you, you know the one that I'm referencing? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's intriguing to me, and you know, so a friend of mine is currently getting his pilot's license, and he's sort of making some observations based off of how self-defense training versus learning to fly 
and information saturation and, and knowing what to look for and not look for and, and how that all plays together. And it sort of speaks to this larger point is one of the things that we're trying to do for our students is essentially showing them what they can ignore, whether it's external information or more importantly, internal emotional feedback. Oh yeah. Or, or internal dialogues, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, just need to be able to lock those out of the process. And uh, just as an aside, you know, you mentioned the aviation analogy and the problem was when I started my big research is there's not a lot of uh, publicly accessible research into the gun topics that we're interested in. I don't doubt that there's some very high-end military units that have some of these answers, but that's not public um, domain material. But there is a ton because, you know, the aviation industry is a billion-dollar business. There's a ton of information out there um, about, you know, cognitive load while flying, um, predicting pilots, that sort of a thing. Um, so that, you know, there's a ton of information out there in that aviation realm that has very direct application to what we're trying to do because, again, um, depending on the circumstances they're in, they are in life and death uh, circumstances and having to make uh, life-altering decisions in very, very short time frames. So there's, there's a very, very uh, high amount of carryover, I think, uh, at least between the brain exercises that are involved in those two um, exercises. And if you think about it, uh, nobody's going to land a plane safely by jamming on the controls. So, again, uh, that's a whole series of very, very fine motor controls, which, you know, some people will tell you are impossible, yet, you know, planes land generally pretty well every day. Sometimes they even land on the Hudson River. Or on an aircraft carrier. You know, it's just that that's an amazing feat of um, human ability every time it happens. Well, and I want to think about how I'd like to ask this next question. So bear with me here for a moment. And I'm trying not to fill silence with, with weird little ums and ahs. So, but... It strikes me that oftentimes the people that are saying, well, this can't be done or this is impossible or, you know, whatever, are almost willfully ignorant. What or do you think that there's something else going on there? Um, I think a lot of it is uh, a willful ignorance that serves their ego. Uh, It's not something they're good at. So if they're not good at it, it must not be able to be done well. Because to do, uh, I mean, otherwise would admit that it was a failing on their part. You know, um, denial, you know, denial and ego is a phrase I think I took from William April, but I think there's a lot of that going on. So I'm going to assume that if people have made it this far into this particular episode, that they are not interested in propagating that inside of themselves. Now they might, and I certainly have done it in the past. I'm, I'm not... I'm not speaking from a place where I I have never done this or don't continue to do this at very inopportune times. But it's something that I'm at least aware of about myself, and I'm working very hard to remove from myself. And I've got my own thoughts on how to do that. But I'd be curious as to your thoughts as far as how do we, specifically as instructors, get people to the place where they're not doing that anymore, that denial and service of the ego or are just will, like willing to put themselves in the position to do this work? Well, and I think part of it is, is most people just don't know what they need to do. So, you know, there is, you know, because of some of the marketing out there, you know, everybody's offering the, there's a lot of people that will offer the, uh, the miracle diet pill that will make you, you know, 
thin and strong with just taking this pill. And there's a lot of, you know, major firearms trainers that, that offer that kind of solution. Um, one of the things that I try to do with people is like, you know, I have a handout when I'm, you know, I've done before and it's, you know, it's called things to do before people are trying to kill you. Right. Because <laughs> if you do these things before people are trying to kill you, you can actually pull them off. Right. But if you don't do anything before somebody's trying to kill you, you're not going to miraculously develop this ability. Right. The skill that we're talking about is something that takes some time. I mean, there's just a certain amount of repetitions you have to have. There's physical changes to the brain that, that take place. So, you know, part of the uh, job as an instructor is that I think you have to be honest with people and say, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not teaching you anything today that you're going to be able to take and have for the rest of your life. Uh, an analogy I, I'm, I stole from Bruce Gray when I did his class is like, look, I'm giving you a map. I'm going to walk you the first five miles, make sure you're headed in the right way. But once you leave this class, it's up to you to keep following this map. So, you know, I think that's why, you know, handouts in classes, talking about how you continue to develop are so critical because I don't know of anybody that can teach you everything you need to know um, for the rest of your life that relates to this stuff in a, in a you know, a two-day class and certainly not, you know, a four-hour seminar that gets you your state CCW license. I have a thought, and it's trying to run away from me, so bear with me for a second while I try and collect it. So to be to be clear here, one of the things that we're discussing, right, is so we're we're talking about developing as much certainty inside of a situ, an uncertain situation as possible. So it's entirely possible to essentially suck less than the other guy and win. And we've got all sorts of examples of that where people do everything in a way that I would consider and you probably would consider as well to be suboptimal and still survive that engagement or even win that engagement. But what we're talking about, and we can't ever fully remove luck or, you know, Providence, whatever you want to call it. You know, sometimes you can do everything right and still lose, and I think that's something that's not acknowledged enough. But what we're talking about, the level of skill that we're discussing here is taking, is trying to get us to the point where we can take a situation where we are at every disadvantage starting out and still be relatively certain of our ability to, to dominate that encounter. Well, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to, we want to avoid stacking the odds against us as much as we can, but, you know, skill and confidence can take you a long, long way as far as getting out of holes. You know, there, there's, I can't think of an immediate example now, but we see that in the law enforcement community where sometimes uh, somebody makes a series of bad decisions that gets them in a pretty big hole, but because they do have something resembling skill or willingness to fight aggressively, they can get out of that hole. I think not getting in the hole is the, the best solution. But, you know, part of the problem is, is for a lot of people, they don't realize they're getting in the hole to begin with, you know. So it, it's important to teach people what that hole starts to look like. How are you getting behind the power curve? You know, how are you falling behind in the processing so you can avoid all that? Right. And we can, we can do that a bunch of different ways. You know, uh, one of the criticisms of some of this training is, uh, well, what you're doing is very artificial. And I will completely concede that point. I can introduce cognitive load by, you know, doing an artificial test. Uh, a great example of uh, quick cognitive load is Tom's casino drill. You know, you've got six shapes of different sizes. It's got numbers on it. You load your gun seven, seven, and seven. 
and you have to, you know, at the basic levels, you start out um, shooting the, the, the right number of bullets onto the right, you know, that matches the number of the target. Well, you can do all kinds of variations. Now, that's a very artificial, right? It's a, you know, it's, but it is a cognitive load. And, you know, it's like exercise is exercise. It's going to make you stronger. So we can either induce this cognitive load artificially by, you know, necessarily what someone might consider complex drills, you know, range stances, whatever you want to use. But the simple fact is, is that I'm making you think while you're performing those skills, you're still getting some benefit out of it. Now, on the same hand, I can not use an artificial cognitive load. I can do something like um, check your ability to move around feelings with the muzzle, you know, with the gun and not muzzle people. Now, that's a much more realistic stress, but it has the same benefit. So I think the key point is, is you need to work these skills, you need to make decisions um, under stress, and you have to almost blend the artificial stress with the real stress in order to get the maximum benefit. Again, there's, there's no one perfect solution, but if we do a bunch of um, different solutions, we can arrive at a pretty happy conclusion. Right. Hey, we've got to go to break. Uh, we're talking with John Hearn right now. When we get back, I've got another question for him. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the Candela from Modlite at the lowest price. No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an optic on your carry gun. Well, BigTexOutdoors.com has those and they don't judge. Glock accessories, yes, fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike, and you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with John Hearn about essentially cognitive load and how it affects us and the outcomes of interpersonal violence and, and things of that nature. So the question that I have for you, John, is um, kind of, I, I'm going to make a statement, and this is not, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but this is something I have sort of observed, and, and I'd sort of like to get your take on it, in that for the most part, if someone's trying to kill you, whether there there's two things that occur there, well, three, but oftentimes people will be shooting unconsciously whether or not they're good at shooting unconsciously, and that can either work out very well for them or not very well for them, or, and we see a lot of negative outcomes in this, someone can be entirely tool-fixated and working their way through the process of what needs to happen to utilize that tool effectively and not making and they're not making good decisions based off of the information that they're no longer processing. Would you say that that's kind of a, a, an overgeneralization of what's going on there? I think absolutely. You know, you can only concentrate on so many factors. Uh, especially if you haven't trained yourself to do so. So, again, I think part of that has to do with the trained versus the untrained individual. Uh, if you've done some training, if you, if you constantly condition yourself, let's, let's take something really simple, like target identification. Uh, Paul Howe has a great algorithm for doing that. 
you know, how to make a decision whether to engage someone or not. Um, the way you would get good at that is to simply go to Walmart and walk around a couple of times a month doing running that algorithm. Well, it's at a certain point, your mind will offload that algorithm to the unconscious part of the brain, and you won't be worrying about that anymore. If you've got that part filed away, when people are trying to kill you, that's no longer something you have to think about. So offloading as many of those critical tasks to the unconscious mind is where we really need to be pushing these things and what's going to distinguish the performers from the non-performers. Does that uh, address your question? Sort of, yeah. And I think that I think one of the other things that I kind of want to address there is that people oftentimes, you know, at least in, in private when I talk to them and I talk about like unconscious competence and shooting the gun unconsciously, they, they sort of smile and nod. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, I'll probably never get there or uh, I don't need to actually get there or, or something of that nature. And I think the point that I'm trying to and I, and I think that you're you're sort of trying to say it as well, is that if, especially if no one's ever tried to kill you before, um, and I don't have like a ton of experience with that, but I've got a little bit, it uh, tends to get your attention and quite a large portion of your attention. And that's not the time that you want to be trying to remember how your how much grip pressure your non-dominant hand is supposed to be applying while you you know press the trigger straight and even to the you know what i mean oh absolutely it's going to focus you very very tightly but you just got to make sure you're focusing on the right things right right so as far as inside of all of this how do we I mean, you sort of talked about this a little bit, but like, what is the quickest way or simplest way? And, and I, I suspect I know your answer to this, but I'd still like to talk about it to get people to the unconscious competence level of firearms, not only just the mechanics of shooting, but handling in general. Um, I would say dry practice, dry practice, and dry practice. Um, you know, before the, the world went crazy with the ammo situation, ammo was still expensive. Um, nowadays, you certainly don't have unlimited ammo to develop these skills. Um, so the dry practice is going to be the key. Um, as a quick aside, um, I found a, uh, a great cell phone-based laser training app. And what I liked about this particular option is that it calls the shots for you. So when I draw the gun, work the trigger in the sights, I can stay totally in that world created by the sights and not worry about looking for the laser dot when I press the trigger and the dot pops up there. Um, because of the geometry it uses, it actually tells me whether you know where that hit was. And I think the last time I looked on my cell phone, I had like, it counts every time you pull the trigger. I'm up to like 17,500 rounds I've fired. Well, dude, that's a, that's a buttload of reps, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's how you get to Carnegie Hall is practice, practice, practice. And it's largely the same thing. Um, if you look at some of the performance research, that kind of a thing, um, get a good class, figure out what you're trying to do, spend a brief, intense time working those essential skills, you know, not just necessarily the draw stroke, but the, the handling of the gun, the load, the unload, the reload, stuff like that. Take the time to dump in the necessary number of repetitions with reasonable performance tracking metrics to make sure that happens. 
but uh, again, it, it's the practice, it's the dry practice, and the problem is it's not sec- for most people it's not sexy, and that's why they all end up doing it and then wonder why they don't perform. I think every firearms instructor in the world has the same student that he might show up. You see him every year. He shines up for a class. You're glad to take his money, but he starts out at the class right where he was 12 months before. At the end of the class, he's kind of up to speed. When you see him in a year or two, he'll be right back down to the old level because, yeah, he comes and takes the classes. He shoots his, you know, 800,000 rounds, but he does no sustainment work between classes. And that person will be forever trapped at that mediocre level of skill. You've got to do the work hard, build up that base of skill, and then it will tend to stick around um, almost into perpetuity, especially if you do it to that level that forces the changes in your brain where you're physically rewiring your brain. Those things don't go away easily. Right. And in my own personal experience, I, well, especially now with, uh, I was just looking at 9mm the other day, and it was around $800 a case. And I'm, in the back of my head, I'm sort of crying a little bit at all of the $160 cases of 9mm I didn't buy, even though I bought quite a few of them at the time. Um, but so, but I have not consistently worked on skill development in quite some time. Now, I've done sustainment, but very, very little of it has been via live fire. Most of the live rounds that I fire these days, and this is sort of the um, the curse of doing this professionally, it, it will be demoing in classes, or if I happen to get the opportunity to go and take a class from someone, I'll shoot there, but that's pretty much it. And it, the irony is that now that I shoot professionally, I don't have time to shoot, which, you know, go figure. And I can say, though, one of the reasons why that has worked is because of how hard and how long I did work to develop that skill. So I, I agree with you completely in that getting getting yourself to that high level of performance absolutely requires a significant amount of effort in an intense and, and sort of compressed period of time. Yeah, well, I think the example, and I don't think it's like for the physics nerds it's entirely accurate, but the, the great example is getting something into orbit, you know, when you're sitting, um, you know, stock still on the Earth, when you first start, you know, fire up the engines and try to get the rocket to go, it takes a lot of energy and effort to get that thing moving. Once it's moving, it takes a little less effort to keep going. And by the time you have the object lifted into orbit and outside of the touch of gravity, uh, it takes very little energy to keep that object in orbit. And I think you can use a, a very similar analogy. You know, it takes a while um, to get your skills going, but once you fall into the habits of practicing regularly, it gets a little bit easier. At that point where you start to cross into the, you know, the threshold of automaticity or whatever, you're, you've got that thing in orbit, and it takes very, very little effort to keep it there. So I think that's a very, very fair analogy, but the whole, the whole crux of the matter is you have to do that initial work. That initial work should be, um, you know, your first exposure to the material should be under the eyes of a watchful coach. Um, ideally, you get some feedback along the way to make sure some habits crept in there, but at a certain point, it's about the reps. It's about the perfect reps right. and doing enough of them to get good. Right. So I kind of want to zoom out a little bit and talk more about like our community at large and sort of what the goal should be. And, and we were sort of discussing this and we, well, we, we've discussed it previously too. And I've timed this poorly because we're actually, we're, we're towards a break here. Let's do this. I'll hold my thought for a second and then we'll talk about it in this last segment. Uh, right now we're talking with John Hurd. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. 
Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment also brought to you by Centurion Arms, even if you're just a cook, a lowly, lowly cook, or you're calling tactical nukes from your couch every night with ease, you need to know that your life-saving equipment is going to work, and Centurion Arms knows it too. Veteran-owned and operated Centurion Arms is dedicated to producing firearms, parts, and accessories with an outstanding level of quality, functionality, and precision at prices you can afford. Whether you just need a new rail or barrel or something else to finish off your latest build, or maybe you want to take all the guesswork out and buy a complete rifle, Centurion Arms has got what you need and knows that when you need it, you need it to work. Visit CenturionArms.com today to check out all their awesome products. Centurion Arms, hard-to-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. So we're talking with John Hearn, and we're sort of talking about how we get our students to unconscious competence, the importance of working on these cognitive shooting skills and firearms handling skills and and things of that nature. And what's kind of interesting to me and something that I have, you know, always enjoyed about our interactions that, you know, we, you you have certainly helped me out quite a ton um, with information, how to teach, just things like that. Like you have, you have certainly been one of the people and there's many of them that have been instrumental in any success that I have ever had passing information along to students. And what's intriguing to me is that theoretically we, we are offering what some people might consider competing classes, you know, if, if we had that kind of mindset and, and that's, you know, certainly not how I view it. And I don't think it's how you view it either. Why is that? Like, why, you know, what, what are your thoughts on all that? I think it's about advancing the art. You know, there are people out here, and I think you and I are those people, our primary goal is to get good people to come home to their families at the end of the day. Yes. Right? That's what our ultimate goal is. And we're looking to figure out the most efficient ways to make that happen. And, again, I call it advancing the art. So, you know, when um, we're no longer on the earth, you know, that's why I think it's sometimes important to, to, to share your thoughts and write stuff down. Um, our goal should be to advance the art and make it easier longer. You know, 10 years from now, it should be easier to get people home. And if you think about that, you look at the uh, an example of that would be the generation of shooters that are coming up. You know, Jerry Mikulik, for instance, had to go through a lot of work and a lot of rounds to figure out how to shoot most effectively. I mean, dude, if you're, you know, 13 or 14 years old, there's this huge treasure trove of information um, it would be very easy to take somebody that's, you know, very young and get them up to a very high level of shooting proficiency because we figured out all the technical, mechanical aspects of shooting most efficiently. I think now's the goal because we know how to do the mechanics in the most technical and efficient manner. It's time to pursue some of these other concerns so that 10 years from now, that uh, learning process will be shortcutted and will be a lot more efficient to get to folks. Right. So I, I had a student at the last class that I taught. I want to say he's 25 years old, and he holds the current student record for one of the assessments that I do, which is dot assessment madness, which is is a thing that I do that I completely, completely, completely was inspired by Tom Givens and the casino drill, right? It's just a, uh, it's a very similar thing, and I, I, I give Tom all the credit, right? So... What's interesting about that to me, though, is his experience and and where he is at on his path. If I compare to where I was at at 25 versus where he's at, 
whether it's skill level, general level of knowledge, things like that, he is leaps and bounds further along than than I was. And, you know, and I think that ultimately I'm really excited. I probably won't live to see it, but I, you know, if things continue along this, this path, like I'm, I'm very curious to see where like 50 years, 60 years from now, where we're, you know, probably both of us are, are either sitting on our front porch in a rocking chair yelling at clouds or just not here anymore, where the art is at in that moment of time. So I think being a good steward of that and helping to advance the art and helping to, you know, let the legacy of the people that have helped us live on through work is incredibly important, right? Well, these are some very hard-won lessons. You know, a lot of our mentors learned this because, you know, they bled or their friends bled for these lessons. And we shouldn't be um, flippant about those lessons. We should preserve them and uh, advance them. So as far as, I guess, inside of the community at large, what, you know, when people think about this and they frame it inside of their own minds, how do we get these interactions with either fellow instructors or, you know, whatever, to not be as adversarial, to, to have it be a, Hey, we're all here for the, the same reason, trying to, to, at the end of the day, do the same thing. And like, and I'm guilty of this too. There's been plenty of interactions that I've had with people that I absolutely made adversarial that didn't need to be, shouldn't have been. And, and I look back at them and I regret it. So how do we, how do we sort of foster the team approach to all of this, do you think? That's a really good question. I'm not going to claim to have a, a really, really good answer because, you know, we always tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, right? That it seems to be the way that does it. And I think that maybe giving, you know, people the benefit of the doubt, uh, at least in the beginning, is the important thing. And, I, I you know, my, my personal take is, um, again, I think that my my reason I'm doing this is to help good people go home to their families. Uh, you know, if, as long as I believe you also share that goal, then I'm willing to share everything with you. And I think that, you know, most of the time, people that share that goal kind of embrace each other. Now, are there some people that are obviously um, in it for the shekels? Yeah, I, I hate to say yes, but I think that's true. Um, so, you know, my, my, uh, my desire necessarily to interact with those people, um, I have a certain amount of time on this earth. And I simply choose to spend that time with people that I'm going to be able to help and are interested in helping others. So I, that's not the answer you were probably looking for, but that's my take on it. No, I, I wasn't looking for a particular answer. I was looking for your answer. So I guess sort of switching directions a little bit, but, but not really. As far as the art goes, like what are some broader areas that – whether or not you explore them or I explore them that need to be explored and you hope is our understanding is furthered on. So, I mean, I know that you and I are very interested in this specific aspect of, you know, the cognitive portion of decision-making with a gun in your hand or shooting with a gun in your hand, whatever it might be. But like, are there some other areas you think are underexplored that you would like to see develop further? Well, I think that um, uh, I've come up with kind of like a chart. I think some of what Sherman House has done as far as his concept of a civilian defender out there are important. Um, I think the problem is a lot of people skip to the gun without realizing there's probably some foundational work that you should be doing 
um, everything from, you know, understanding criminal predation, you know, who criminals are, because um, how you prepare, you know, there, there's this huge debate in our society right now about, you know, why people become criminals. You know, there's one side that says, you know, to the most part, these are um, victims of our evil capitalist society, and, this, and we have made them ourselves, and we just deserve what we're getting, versus there's the side that thinks these are rational actors making rational choices. Well, you know, if you think that somebody's a poor victim of society, if that's what you think is believing, you know, is driving the criminality you're worried about, you're not going to prepare for it in the same way as you would if you think that person is a is a cold, deliberate actor. So understanding criminality and, you know, what makes criminals is one of those areas that I think is underappreciated. Uh, I think that's what our departed, your departed friend William was, was great at, was kind of bringing some reality um, to your preparation. Um, so understanding predation, um, understanding awareness, you know, there's a whole bunch of fields that aren't quite as sexy. Everything from what I mentioned earlier, you know, going through a good algorithm for threat identification, um, understanding how to properly place shots for the most effectiveness. Um, there's a whole bunch of fields that support that primary shooting action. And if I had to guess here, I think what you're seeing going on is we've cracked the shooting code because we've got that competitive um, environment to kind of figure out what works for us. I think the problem we're going to have and the challenge is going to be is that we don't have that clear, concise, objective environment in which to work uh, outside of that competitive world. So I think there's a, you know, I, I think what we're going to see the, sign, uh, the art advanced by is a bunch of people making smaller contributions into these more obscure areas, but all those uh, contributions are going to be important to giving us a better overall picture. Right, right. Well, and I know personally something I'm interested in, so, so you brought up, you know, criminal predation and, and things like that. And, you know, the, the loss that the community has experienced with William's passing, I know that the people that know him or, you know, knew him um, are aware of what kind of just gaping chasm that has left inside of our community. And, and I very much hope that people... You know, and I know that you're you're continuing his work, and I know other people are as well. Something that I would like to see, and, and this is sort of unrelated, but maybe it's not. I don't know. Is the social interaction side of our community and its messaging and how that plays? And I know Tiffany Johnson and Akil Kadir are working on that quite a bit. I know Sarah Hopman is is working on that quite a bit. But I think that. You know, specifically when we look at like the cultural, and I, I hate to say war because it shouldn't be this way, but it is to a degree. Um, I think that's an area that we all need to take a very, very hard look at, especially in the coming years, because that's that's an area that is not that it wasn't important before, but it's just becoming even more crucial. And if, if we could somehow get it to where... <clears throat> you know, instead of personal protection or guns or whatever being a political issue, but, but it just being a human rights issue, I think that that, that is going to be key to things moving forward. And, and we're at the end of the show, but, like, I'd like to get your response to that before we leave. Well, absolutely. And, you know, um, I think it's important to, to recognize that this just isn't um, something about being able to gun or not, that it's much it, – it's part of a larger – again, cultural context where we're talking about the right to self-defense, the right to be free from tyranny, that sort of a thing. And that's something that we should all have an interest in. I mean, ultimately, how well we live, how well our kids live, how well our grandkids live, 
are going to depend on the decisions we're making today. And whether we move forward as a group or are recalcitrant and stay where we are or backpedal, that's something we're all going to contribute to either positively or negatively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and man, I, I, I'd, I'd like to have this conversation more, but we are out of time and I know you've got stuff to do with your day. And, but if people want to come train with you, uh, take a class with you, where, where can they find out more about that? All right. So I just, uh, with the help of the beautiful Tiffany Johnson, uh, I now have my own website. It's jhern.com, just J-H-E-A-R-N-E.com. Uh, it's very simple right now, but uh, as I announce classes and get some dates finalized, stuff will be showing up there. Um, I do have a class coming up in uh, April out in Oklahoma that's been booked. Uh, that's going to be a combination of a carbine class, uh, just a one-day kind of self-defense carbine class, the whole eight-hour lecture on who wins, who loses, and why, and then a, a day of cognitive uh, pistol work with tactical anatomy rolled into there. Uh, that's going to be in April out in Oklahoma uh, at the Meat Hall Range. Um, also, don't forget, I'll be at TACCON this year. I think a lot of smart people are at TACCON every year, so I know I realize we're sold out. But, you know, when the tickets go on sale for 2022, uh, don't be shocked when they sell out like they have for every year they have for as long as I can remember. So that will be where to catch up with me. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you out at TACCON because I certainly will be there. And I'm, I'm going to make it a personal priority to see you in April as well. Uh, at uh, at the stuff you're doing in Oklahoma, I very much want to um, check that out. I, I've seen the eight hour presentation. I haven't seen the other two things, and I'm I'm super excited for them. So anyway, John, I appreciate you coming on the show, taking the time to talk with us. It's always a great time. Uh, it certainly is. All right, hey guys, make sure you check out our website ballisticradio.com, like our Facebook page at facebook.com/ballisticradio. And hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes if you think we've earned it. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week.